Okay. I've been told that we're back. Praise the Lord. <laughs> okay. Yes. We're back. Hallelujah. Um, now I just have to remember what I was going to say this morning. Uh, thank you, Jackson, for uh, reading the scripture passage for us. Anybody who, who uh, maybe didn't, uh, didn't uh, catch the scripture passage, you can go back and, and see it. Um, it's, we're, we're looking at verses 22, or sorry, verses 24 through 31 of Acts chapter 17. And the reason we're doing that is because we are in this uh, short series uh, called Good News for Philosophers, where we have been looking at how Paul interacts with the sophisticates of his day and age, the people who are kind of the cultured elites, and how he uh, shares the gospel with them. Because we're trying to understand what principles uh, are translatable to our modern context, because we live in a culture that uh, is relatively well-educated and relatively sophisticated, at least in comparison to cultures past, and yet the gospel does not seem to uh, be of much interest to people in our modern uh, present culture. And so uh, we've, been, we've, been, we've been making our way through Acts 17 to try to understand what those, those principles are. And let me just say, um, you know, if, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you should be able to discern that there are certain ways of thinking in our culture that are very, very different from your own. That your culture, the, the non-Christians around you in your sphere of influence, let's say at work or at home or in school or wherever, the non-Christians around you, they have a different way of looking at reality than you do. And that actually affects how they live. Now, you may not be able to articulate where that comes from and what that looks like, but at the very least, you should be able to have kind of a spidey sense about it. Do you know what I mean when I say spidey sense? Spider-Man is this superhero who has this ability to kind of detect danger before it, it happens. He knows that something is off. It's, a, it's that kind of thing that you should at least be able to do. You should at least be able to discern as you listen to the music being played by your culture uh, that, that, that it's being played off tune a little bit. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what you want to do is you want to be able to understand where it's off tune and how it's off tune so that in order that you will be able to uh, confront that uh, and reveal that, expose that for the people that you love and care about. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul does in our passage. We saw last week that, that he, he demonstrated that the Athenians around him had a different God than he did. They had a God, they had an idea of God uh, that, that made them think that, that they could control him, that they could sort of put God in their debt and use him to accomplish their ends. And, and Paul discovers that and he exposes that. And now today, what we're going to see is that he actually confronts that. He confronts their, their thinking about God and their thinking about worship, and then he uses their categories to 
to accomplish that. So that's what we're going to look at together this morning. We're going to see how Paul uses the categories of the Athenians to confront their thinking about God and their worship about God. So the first thing he confronts is their thinking about God. Because you see, what we think about God is actually the most important thing about us. What we think about God actually shapes how we think about everything else. And if you don't think anything about God, don't think that that means that your thinking of, about God doesn't shape how you think about everything else. Did that make sense? If you don't believe in God, don't go and think, well, I don't believe in God, so what I think about God has nothing to do with what I think about everything else. Uh-uh. Actually, your disbelief in God shapes very much how you think about absolutely everything else. And therefore, it is still true whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or a Christian or whatever, it is still true that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's a quote from A.W. Tozer. That's not my cool saying. You can still tweet it, of course, but give credit to Tozer rather than to me. So this is what Paul actually goes after in this passage. And he shows us four things about God that are different from what the Athenians think. He shows them, first of all, that God is creator. If you look at verse 24, Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, why is this profound? What's so profound about saying this? Well, if you go back up in the passage, you'll remember that Paul is encountering um, Epicure, it says in the passage that Paul encountered Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. So these were people who had a particular worldview, the Epicurean worldview and the Stoic worldview. And they had some very interesting beliefs, these people. First of all, the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that if there is a creator of the universe, that creator is far off, uninvolved in the world, utterly impersonable, impersonal, impersonal, doesn't care about what's happening in the universe that he created, and therefore absolutely everything in the world is run by chance. And therefore, the way we ought to live is, is we ought to figure out how to come up with what is the most good for the most people. So we want to maximize pleasure, but we want to do it on a grand scale. What is the best way for us to maximize pleasure as a culture, have the most good for the most people? Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like the modern equivalent of what we've talked about several times in this series, and that is that God is essentially irrelevant to people. He's impractical. He doesn't have any effect on their actual day-to-day -day lives. And therefore, human beings, whether God exists or not, is not really an important question because if he does, he doesn't have anything to do with my day-to-day -day life. And therefore, what human beings ought to do is they ought to figure out for themselves what's good for them. What's right, what's wrong, what, what leads to a happy life, what leads to, a, to a, a, an unhappy life. And so there's a connection, actually, between this Epicurean way of thinking that was some 2,000 plus years old and the way people think today. The other group of people were the Stoics. Now, the Stoics believed that God was in everything. So they were what, you're called, what you call pantheistic. And, and that means that God would be near to all of us because God is us, or we are God. He is in each and every one of us, and we are part of him. 
And yet, they said, God continues to be impersonal because he doesn't have a personality, he doesn't have a, a, a character like you and I do, and therefore the world isn't run by chance, it's actually run by fate. Fate runs the world. Everything is predetermined. You can't control fate, but you can control how you deal with fate. You can't control your circumstances, and, and, but you can control how you live with your circumstances. And so the goal of life, according to these Stoics, was you need to learn how to live in harmony with reason and the vicissitudes, meaning the up and down of fortune and pleasure and pain in the world. So you can't control the, the good and the bad things that come to you and happen to you, but you can control how you interact with those things so that you can lead a life of pleasure. What does that sound like? Well, if any of you have ever gone to see a therapist for issues like anxiety or depression, possibly, I shouldn't say probably, well, probably, probably one of the techniques that, that uh, they will have used with you is something called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And it's actually a very successful uh, and very effective way of dealing with these kinds of issues. Well, why am I talking about that? Here's why. The philosophy behind CBT is stoicism. Because you can't control your circumstances, but you can control the way you respond to your circumstances. And so there are very helpful practices that CBT teaches to, to deal with your circumstances so that you're not overwhelmed with depression or overwhelmed with anxiety. Now, the reason I bring that up is, 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 is to just say that, that these things are still relevant today. Stoicism is still around today. Epicurean, epicurean, epicurean. The other one is still around today. They're around today. They take different forms. They look different, but they're still around today. And biblical Christianity actually confronts both. That's what Paul does here. He says God is the creator. He starts with creation, and he says, listen, God made absolutely everything, and he doesn't live in temples that you have built. You know why? He built the temples indirectly. He built the people that built the temples. You can't box him in because he built the boxes. You cannot domesticate him. He challenges this idea that the universe is run by chance because he says God is personal. There is a personal creator of the universe who can be known. And he challenges the idea of fate as well because he says that, that this God who is in control of all things, actually interacts with the world. It's not a determined kind of machine where God just sort of wound up the clock and let it run, and therefore everything's going to do what it's going to do, and God has nothing to do with it. No, he's a personal God, and so even though he's sovereign, as we'll get to in a moment, he actually is in control in such a way that the universe runs in relationship to him. That's the first thing. Second thing he says is God is sustainer. This is verse 25. In verse 25, it says this. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul says, why are you guys given these idols that, that you've built up these meat and, and sacrifices and things like that? What do you think you're doing? You think you're pleasing Hermes and Zeus and, and Athena and Hades and all these gods? You can't feed the living God. He feeds us. That's what he's saying. How 
in the world can this God depend upon you for anything when he has given you life and he has given you breath and he has given you everything else? Now, notice what this does. When you say this, when Paul says this, here's what he's introducing to the Athenians. He's establishing dependency, which necessarily leads to accountability. Think about it. Dependency leads to accountability because God is the one who gives life to human beings and sustains them and watches over them and protects them, then they are accountable to them. We need him, therefore we are accountable to him. And he goes on and he says, just in case you Greeks think that, 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 that this God is sort of similar to your gods, he's kind of local and territorial. You know, you have Zeus, who's the God of war. You have Athena, who's the God of love. You have Hades, who's the God of the underworld. They're gods of their various domains. In case you think this, that's the way I'm talking about this God, look at verse 26. In, in first part, it says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. In other words, this God is not just Israel's God. I'm not just introducing you to this ethnicity's God or this race's God. He made everybody. He is the ruler of everyone. That's the third thing. God is creator. God is sustainer. God is ruler of all. And that God is ruler of all whether you acknowledge him or not. And this is really important, okay? Paul is not saying, as people in our culture would like us to say, Paul is not saying, look, every one of us has to decide for themselves whether, whether they want to follow Allah, whether they want to follow Buddhism, whether they want to follow Hinduism, or whether they want to follow nobody at all. You know, as long as you're following something with sincerity, we're all kind of getting to the same place, right? You know, God is kind of at the top of the mountain. You're on the south side of the mountain and someone else is on the north side of the mountain and you're using your religion to climb that mountain and lo and behold when you get to the top you see your your friend there who started at a different place and that's how it all works that's not what paul's saying at all Uh uh-uh he's saying that everybody needs to submit to this god that he's introducing because he is the ruler of all look at verse 26 again in the second half he says he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands Notice how different from chance this is, right? God says where we must live and where we will live. He's telling these Athenians, you are in Athens, you live here, God puts you here. Or, sorry, you live here because God puts you here. That's what he's telling the Athenians. He is sovereign over the affairs of daily life. You think everything is by chance? No way. Well, what about the Stoics? The Stoics thinks everything's determined. It's all by faith. No way. Look at verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You hear that? The reason I put you here is so that you will seek me, that you will look, you will, you will look for me, and perhaps you will reach out and you will find me. That sounds like human responsibility, doesn't it? It sounds like we're supposed to respond to the revelation of God uh, that he has given us. That's not determinism. That's not fate. See, so, so Paul con- confronts their, their faulty worldview. He starts with their, world, their view of God. And listen... Every form of heterodoxy, it's a fancy word that just means false religion. Every single form of false religion, friends, starts with creating a God in your own mind that you can control somehow and you can get along with him on your own terms. 
You go to the Bible and you tweak it a little bit so that God becomes tame, so that he never challenges you. He doesn't have any intention of changing you. He doesn't intend any intention of, of actually confronting you as you want to be. And Paul is saying here, that God does not exist. God made you. And he is sovereign. And he calls the shots, not you. And then fourth thing, this God is Savior. This is, this is found in verse 27 and 28, but it's a little hard to see. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Why would, God, why would Paul say God put you there so that you will reach out for him and perhaps find him because God wants a relationship with us, which implies that God does not have a relationship with us. There was, excuse me, a break in that relationship. When we rebelled against God, we said, ah, we want to run the show. We want to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. We want to decide for ourselves how we ought to live. We think we know best. We broke covenant. We broke relationship with God. And that, has, that is what God is calling on us to restore. But notice what, notice what interesting thing Paul does here. He quotes their poets. He doesn't, like, quote the Old Testament. He doesn't say, as 1 Kings 18 verse 27 says. No, he quotes their poets because their poets, in the Greek mind, they were the prophets of their culture and their society. Okay? So they were inspired by what were called the muses. Have you ever heard that? You know, so-and-so is my muse. That's my source, of inf my, my source of creative inspiration. And Paul does this to show that this truth is something that they have had access to all along. And that they don't have an excuse to say, well, we didn't know. You did know because your own poets have talked about it. Now, let me, let me just quickly apply this very quickly before... We get to the last thing. This is, this is astounding to me. Every single one of you in this room and all you people listening from home, you live somewhere. Duh, how profound, I know. But think about it. You all have neighbors where you live. Even those of you who live in the country and your neighbor is like half a kilometer down the road, you still got a neighbor. And you might actually know your neighbor better than the people who live in town, strangely. Because country folks seem to be sometimes a little more friendly with one another than city folk do. But the reality is, is that every single one of us has a neighbor. We are all placed where we live in our neighborhoods. Why? Because God wants us to be there. He is absolutely sovereign. That's what Paul has said. Okay, fair enough. Why does God want us to be there? He says he wants people to seek them. It is no accident that you live in the neighborhood where you are. If God wants your unbelieving neighbors to seek them, him, and you are in that neighborhood, and you're their neighbor, and you know him, what do you think your responsibility is? Every single one of us has people that we know, by virtue of where we live, who don't know Jesus, who need to know Jesus, and you live near them so that you can be a vehicle for them to know Jesus. That's astounding. I could do a whole sermon on that, but I've got to move on. Paul doesn't just challenge their thinking, he challenges their worship. Now, he does this in verse 20, 20, uh, 29 and following. 
Therefore, since we are God's we're offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, listen to this, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul uses this word ignorance with a group of people, we talked about this last week, who were the probably the, they were the professors of Harvard and Yale and Oxford and the Sorbonne. They were the, the intellectual elites of the day and he calls these Athenians ignorant. Some of the most, most well-educated people in the world at the time are ignorant. Why? Why? Well, because to Paul, the worst form of ignorance is ignorance of the living God. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, where are the scholars? Where are the wise men of this age? Where are they? God's wisdom cancels out the wisdom of even the, the smartest atheists. Because no matter how smart you are, the height of wisdom and joy is to know the God who made you for himself, okay? And so Paul says, repent. He says, God has been patient with you. He has, he has overlooked your ignorance for a period of time. But now he says, turn from your idols. Turn from your sex ambition and your desire to, to, to be beautiful and to, to work on your body so that you live to be a hundred and all the other idols that are out there like money and power and reputation and even family and et cetera, et cetera. Turn away from them, he says. Why? Because there's a coming judgment. Verse 31, he appointed, notice the urgency, Paul says. He says, listen, he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Tommy quoted from it, actually, in his testimony from Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. Now I'm going to get really evangelistic here for a minute. I said to Tommy how much I really appreciated that he made this appeal to his friends. And I, I, I mean that. Because the truth of the matter is, is justice is coming. History is linear. The Bible story does not end at the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. Where you and I, if we put our trust in Jesus, we get to have a happy life and carry on and whatever. And if we don't, well, you'll live a less happy life, maybe, and carry on and whatever. No, history is actually going to an end point. And justice is coming. The one who was raised from the dead, Jesus who was raised from the dead, who nobody else has ever been raised from the dead, okay? There have been people who have been resuscitated, but they all die again. The only one who was raised never to die again was the Son of God, Jesus, who God himself has appointed to be the judge of the world. Justice is coming and nobody gets away with anything. And I just want to make an appeal to any of you who has 
thought, yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe this gospel is true. Maybe Jesus is true. But I'll get around eventually to dealing with Jesus and deciding whether or not I'm going to believe in him. Or maybe you're a young person. This happens to a lot of young people in their teens or in their early 20s. Sometimes you need to have kids before you get a good smack upside the head and you start thinking straight. And you think to yourself, well, you know what? I'm still young. I'm still enjoying life. I know I'll, I'll get serious about cultivating a relationship with Jesus eventually. But right now, I I just love a lot of other things. Well, let me tell you, I know of a, I know of a, a story of a, of a young man, 15 years old, who, who uh, was a healthy, young, strong young man who was at the cottage with his family, and they were swimming like they had done hundreds of times before, and he dove into the water, and he never came up because something happened in a moment and his heart stopped and he died. I know of another boy who on the soccer field was playing at the age of 14, had a heart attack right there in the soccer field, 14 years old, and he died right on the spot. Just this last week, there was a family going out for an evening walk and some maniac decided to mow them down and four people were dead instantaneously. Yesterday, I was watching uh, World Cup soccer because I'm, a, I'm an addict, I admit, and uh, I'm watching Denmark and Finland and one of the most healthy, most popular, most skilled players on the planet, a guy named Christian Eriksen, was in, in the 43rd minute while he's running down the field, all of a sudden he collapses and he had to be resuscitated because his heart stopped and he was rushed to hospital. This is an elite athlete. Listen, what I'm trying to tell you is this. You don't know when your number's up. You don't. You're 16 years old. You think you've got the world by the tail. You think you've got a future to do whatever you want and have some fun. And eventually you'll figure stuff out. And here the most important questions are laid right in front of you. And you are saying, I have time. What makes you think you have time? Where did you get the idea that you have time? The Apostle Paul went to these Athenians who ran the world at the age and he looked them in the eye and he said, contrary to what you want to believe, Jesus is God and he is the judge and he is coming back and you better be ready for him. And that has not changed. And you think to yourself, well, 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't returned. How do we know it's true? We know it's true because as Paul said, he gave proof of this by raising him from the dead. Listen. Next week's sermon is about what do we do about the unpopularity of all of I've, what I've just said. But the, the conclusion to today is this. There are some irreducible, non-negotiable truths of the Bible that if you are a Christian, you believe them. And if, they, if you believe them, they have to make it into your conversation with your non-Christian friend. And one of them is the reality of judgment. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to say it. Nobody wants to hear it. But as Tommy said, he didn't want to hear it either. It offended him, but then he 
listened. And he was afraid. And there is nothing wrong with being afraid of judgment and saying, Jesus, I cast myself upon you and I plead with you to accept me by your free grace so that I no longer have to fear your judgment. That is precisely what I'm pleading with you to do right now. Stop fiddling around and saying, tomorrow I can, tr- I can think about it. Tomorrow I can wrestle with whether Jesus actually is the Son of God. Tomorrow I'll decide whether I believe that he rose from the dead. No, today is the day of your salvation. You don't know if you have a tomorrow. You don't. But you have today and you have right now. Please. Please, consider this. Consider him. Consider how he was willing to die on the cross for you and face judgment so that you don't have to. You don't have to. All you got to do is give yourself to him. I want to pray for you right now. Father, for anyone who is not trusting in Jesus and is watching this morning I pray for them and I plead for them that they would realize that right now you are standing at the door knocking just as as Tommy quoted from the book of Revelation in his testimony and I, I, I again praise God for his testimony that you, you are standing at the nor- door knocking may they open the door may they not be afraid to welcome you now Because if they do, they need not be afraid when you return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.